Welcome to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Visit heartstrong.life forward slash login to access the notes from today and all the benefits of our membership community. One to the two and two to the three. Let the world see the Holy Trinity. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples of Jesus together. Why don't we start off with the memory verse? I think uh, this time it's not as long as past month, so hopefully we're all becoming really familiar with it. But if somebody wouldn't mind unmuting and sharing it with us, that would be uh, wonderful. And then we'll dive into the to the teaching. I'll do it. Awesome. Thank you. First Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you so much. All right. So I'll just uh, pray and we'll, we'll dive right in. Lord God, I thank you so much for all these beautiful smiling faces this morning, Lord, for everybody that has joined this call. Lord God, we know that it is a sacrifice, Lord, as we give up sleep, we are intentionally putting effort into showing up and being part of HeartStrong, Lord God. And I just pray for your mercy. I pray for your blessing on every person here. Lord God, we invite your presence. Lord God, without you, we are nothing. We need your presence. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us this morning. So open our eyes, open our ears, and open our heart. We don't want to just gain head knowledge, Lord God. We want to experience your power. We want to experience your wisdom and a revelation, Lord. I pray for everyone who is just longing to hear from you. God, may you speak right to their hearts this morning. We invite you to be with us, and we're so thankful that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I thought I would start with just a quick recap of Leviticus. I don't know about you, but I learn by hearing over and over again, and it takes me a while. So um, we've gone through a lot. So I think what I'll do is just start with that, if that's okay with everyone, and then we'll dive into Leviticus um, chapter 25. Um, and 26. So the book of Leviticus has been birthed from God's desire to dwell among his people. Israel severely damaged the relationship by their blatant acts of idolatry that we saw in the book of Exodus. The Lord cannot speak directly to his people, so he chose to speak through Moses. God gives them rules and boundaries, and he makes a way for sinful people to live in his holy presence. God is holy and set apart. He is the creator and the author of life, and the space around him is holy. Therefore, we too must be holy to come into his presence. We covered the ritual sacrifices. So in simple terms, we learned through Leviticus that these were ways given to the people to simply say thank you to God for all that he had done for them and to say sorry for the ways that they had failed to follow God's laws. 
These rituals reminded the people of God's mercy and the seriousness of their sin. We talked about the seven annual feasts, and Pastor Terry touched on that yesterday. These were given to remind them of the story of how God redeemed them. These beautiful unfolding of the feasts told a story about who they were and who God was to them. We learned about the qualifications of priests. Now, these were very important instructions to be followed because the priests represented God on earth and then God to the people. So they must be set apart and holy in order to do this. And there were serious consequences for disobeying. Through chapters 11 to 15, we covered the rituals of purity, giving instructions around touching things that were considered unclean or that represented death. And then the moral purity laws that were created to cause the Israelites to live differently from the Canaanites. They were called to a higher level and standard of sexual purity, which is the case of modern day Christians as well. Then we have the amazing day of atonement, which happened once a year. This was the purification offering as well as the scapegoat, where all of the sins of the people were placed on the goat and it was sent out into the wilderness to never return. The Day of Atonement was given to show God's desire to remove sin and its consequences so that he could live and dwell among his people. The final chapters that we're going to cover are a call of covenant faithfulness, God's blessings for their obedience, and the consequences if they don't follow. After all of these instructions, we see hope as we move into the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter one, verse one says that God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, thus revealing that the book of Leviticus worked because back in Exodus 40, 35, we were told that Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. So we see a little glimmer of hope. Okay, so we are going into Leviticus 25. And that starts off with the Sabbath year. So I'm just going to read the first portion from verse 1 to 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in The seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap and grow of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. These words were spoken in faith to the Israelites while they were actually still in the wilderness, not yet in the promised land. They were in at Mount Sinai from 
Exodus 19 all the way to Numbers uh, chapter 10. This sabbatical year was designated as a full suspension of all normal agricultural activities. This practice assumed that the land was a gift from God and that he, as the Lord of creation, provided rest for his creation. During this year, the work of animals and human laborers in the fields and vineyards enjoyed a respite from the daily grind of toil. The instructions for the sabbatical year relied on an important expectation. The people would receive from God's land of promise and settle in peace and prosperity. It made me think of how difficult it can be for us as Christians to stop working for one day, to set aside one Sabbath day and trust that God is going to provide for us, that it's okay if we stop working. But God was asking them to set aside work for an entire year. Observing the Sabbath, not only on the seventh day, but the seventh year was a powerful testimony of dependence on God. Israel declared their belief that God would meet their needs. This was truly living by faith, and God wanted his people to live trusting in him. This very much applies to us today. And I put this question out there just to ponder as we go through this teaching. What is God asking you to trust him with? In order to receive this divine provision, Israel had to take a giant leap of faith to activate the supernatural power and provision of God. So they needed to be an active part of this promise to step out, to to set aside this year, and then God would meet them in that place. From the instructions, God gave the people in the way they were to treat his property. We can learn about the God of grace who has reserved an inheritance for his people and ensured that theirs will be a plentiful future of bounty and blessing. We are reminded of this teaching in the New Testament, which declares that Christians have received an inheritance, not of land or of temporal riches, but of far greater eternal life and spiritual blessings that God has made sure through Christ our Lord. And we hear that in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Our inheritance is an eternal blessing that cannot be spoiled or stolen. It is ours to enjoy in part now, but it is placed in reserve for us in heaven, awaiting our full inheritance. Jesus promised his disciples on the night he was arrested. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? That's John 14, verse 2. And then we move in to the year of Jubilee. So I'm just going to read from verses 8 to 12. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, 
you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. The year of jubilee is to be observed every 50th year. It was something like a double portion Sabbath year in the sense that crops were not planted and the land was given rest for two years. This, again, required total trust and dependence on God for the provision of the basic necessities of life. It's actually hard to imagine that modern day, if we were told you are to just step away from your job for two years and all God will provide everything that you need. I mean, it seems absolutely so dramatic, so out of our, our, our thought and our mind of how would we ever, ever do that? But God is asking the people to trust him. It is supernatural what God is asking for them to do in his provision. So if the people followed God's laws, he was going to bless them so richly that they would not be in need at all. He even tells the people that the harvest is going to be so rich every six years before the seventh year sabbatical that they were actually going to eat crops for three more years, which is amazing. The provision of God is just an incredible thing. The year of Jubilee was to be announced on the Day of Atonement with a trumpet blast. And as Christians, I'm sure when you read that, it makes you Think of something else, right? That sounds familiar. A day is coming when we too will hear the trumpet blast and we will see our Savior who made our final atonement once and for all, coming back to take us to our eternal home. And that's in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. In the year of Jubilee, the land went back to its original family. The Jubilee presupposed that many families had sold off their land to others outside of the family because of troubling circumstances such as crop failures or a death in the family. For example, a widow without adult sons would not be able to care for the family land and would need to sell. The return of the property to the original family at Jubilee, however, could not be settled without equitable payment to the purchaser. The selling and the buying of land must be figured according to the number of years before the next Jubilee. This system was a blessing to Israel, as it is meant that no clan or large family was forever poor. Once again, we see God making provision for his people. Every 50 years, there was a reset in the economy of Israel with debts canceled, servants liberated, and the return of land. These next verses cover the redemption of property and the kindness of poor brothers. 
So I'm just going to read from uh, verse 23 in chapter 25. So the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. In all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. The whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Because the promised land belonged to God in a special sense, the land could be leased but never sold. Every lease would expire in the year of Jubilee. You could say that this was also a reminder to Israel that their real home was in heaven with him, that they were only strangers and visitors to this earth, which is true of us today as well. The redemption of property could be accomplished through a redeeming relative. This redeeming relative, or in Hebrew called a goel, had the right to do three essential things for a clan or a family. They could redeem a family member sold into slavery. They could redeem the family's land or inheritance sold outside of the family. Or they could avenge the murder of a member of the family. So they had three essential things that could be done. We see a beautiful example of this in the book of Ruth, where Boaz was the closest redeeming relative, and he fulfilled the responsibility of kinsman redeemer out of love for Ruth. This is also a beautiful picture of Jesus reflected in the Old Testament as he is our redeeming relative, redeeming us from slavery to sin. And we see this in Romans 3.24 and 1 Corinthians 6.20. These next verses from 35 to the end of 55 talks of the kindness that the Israelites were supposed to show to their poor brothers and how they are to redeem a poor man. So God is commanding the Israelites to not make money from the misfortune of a poor brother and to not regard him as a slave, but to allow them to work off their debt as a hired hand or sojourner. But every hired hand was released at the year of Jubilee. God reminds them that they had been slaves to the Egyptians, but when they were delivered, they became property of the one who redeemed them, the Lord himself. It is a reminder to us that we have been redeemed by God's mercy. So we are to be merciful with others as God has been merciful with us. Now we're going to move in to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 is a remarkable chapter promising blessings to an obedient Israel, but curses to a disobedient Israel. Before the blessings and curses are proclaimed, God reminded Israel of the foundational law that Yahweh, the Lord, covenant God of Israel, that he alone must be worshipped. I'm just going to read verse 11 to 13 in Leviticus 26. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. What a beautiful picture of the intimacy God longs to have with his children, to walk and live among them, lifting off the burden of sin, no longer slaves, but free. And we see that reminder throughout all of these chapters that God continuously reminds them, I am the Lord your God. I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. So we're going to talk a little bit more about these blessings that God has promising Israel, but also the curses that he is talking about for the punishment of their disobedience. And we see that all through the verses from verse 3 all the way down to verse 39 goes over these blessings and curses. So I'll pull some of that out for you and just uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. So these verses offer many specific details about how God will bless the people if they obey his command. In fact, these blessings are of a supernatural impartation from God, such as abundance of food and provision, supernatural protection against their enemies. As an example, in verse 8, God says, Five of you shall chase 100, and 100 shall put 10,000 to flight. That's a supernatural thing. When we think, you know, how could five people chase 100? How can 100 people chase off 10,000 enemies that were coming to take over their land? However, but their choice of disobedience, the extreme opposite, becomes true. In verse 36, God tells them that they will live with so much fear that even the sound of a leaf will strike terror into their hearts, and they will run as though being chased by a sword. Their disobedience will mean a life of sorrow, fear, and loss in every way. They're very, very contrasting verses from blessing to curses. So just to go over what these blessings were, the Lord promised them fertile land, land that was going to produce bountiful harvests to cover every need that they have. He promised them that they would live in safety from their enemies. He promised that savage beasts would be removed from their lands, that the sword would be removed, and that they would have victory over the enemies, and that they would live in God's favor. How wonderful and how beautiful is that? It's hard to imagine that we would choose any other life than receiving the blessings of God. But the curses were the opposite, that they would have unproductive land. They would work and toil and that they would get very little for their labor. They would live in a foreign nation, that wild beasts would actually devour them, that the sword would come and avenge, that they would be defeated by enemies and that they would be living under God's disfavor. But the chapter ends, however, by giving the people hope that even if they fall into a world of sin, that God said that if they would repent for their sins and the sins of their fathers, he would offer them forgiveness. Although they must pay for the consequences of their disobedience, 
the Lord promised that he would not break the covenant that he made with Jacob, Abraham, and Isaac. The Lord would not forget the people of Israel whom he delivered from Egypt. So I'm just going to read from verse 40 to 42. But if they confess their iniquity and their iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember the land. We serve a God who is relentless in pursuing his children. We cannot escape the consequence of our sin. We see that in these chapters. There is consequence when we choose to live outside of the will of God. We still must receive discipline and correction, but it is always done in love for our benefit, but also for the benefit of the family of God as a whole. In Revelation 3.19, it says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. What has stood out to me through these chapters of Leviticus is the length at which God will go to be in close proximity to his people. He made every provision for them to be holy and set apart. So in order to be near to them. And that's what we've seen through these chapters. God was so specific. You know, we wonder, you know, why so much detail and all of this. But the Israelites had to be set apart from the Canaanites. They had to appear different in every way. His love for them is the undertone of all of these chapters. We just need to have eyes to see and ears to hear. May you be encouraged today that you are loved from the beginning of creation to this very moment and every moment yet to come. God has sought you out and is drawing you to himself. And I truly do pray that you would see this through these chapters, that you would be encouraged, that you would see God's love for you and God's love for all of creation as he is made a way for us and for the Israelites to be in his presence. And we're so thankful that we have his presence within us today, that we're constantly living under his protection and in his love. So as we end um, these chapters, a couple questions that we can discuss and, and talk about. But what do these chapters and these verses speak to you about who God is? What has been revealed to you through Leviticus? And what have you learned about God's character and who he is? And then the second question, what step of obedience have you taken in your life that you have had to trust God for the outcome? We saw that through these chapters, God was asking the Israelites to step out in faith, to completely rely on him, and that he would meet them 
in a supernatural way that their obedience and their trust would activate his supernatural power and provision. So is there a step that he is asking you to take right now? And maybe there's a circumstance in your life that you've already walked through where you trusted God with something and he met you in that place. Thank you for joining us today. Have you ever joined one of our live online Bible studies? When you become a HeartStrong member, you will have access to all of our live Bible studies. These studies are amazing because we get to do it together. We listen to the teaching and then we spend about 30 minutes discussing what we have learned. You will hear powerful testimonies, insights, and questions and prayer times from people like you and me. We would love to see you there. Visit heartstrong.life and click membership to join. And we look forward to seeing you at one of our live online Bible studies soon. Let's become HeartStrong Disciples together.